For weeks, the conventional wisdom in Washington couldn't have been clearer. There was a red wave coming that would sweep Republicans to a historic victory, winning back control of the U.S. House by a wide margin and potentially control of the Senate as well. But then the voters spoke, and the conventional wisdom of the pollsters and pundits was wrong once again. As we sit on Wednesday, the GOP seems likely to win control of the House after all, but by an exceedingly thin margin that could prove a nightmare for presumptive Speaker Kevin McCarthy. And the Senate seems that it could once again depend on the results of a runoff in Georgia, where the party's Donald Trump-backed candidate Herschel Walker will have huge challenges in his hopes of unseating incumbent Democratic Senator Raphael Warnock. What do the election results say about what passes for the conventional wisdom in American politics? And what do they mean for a 2024 presidential contest that could well begin as early as next week? We'll talk to Yahoo News political reporter Andrew Romano and Washington Post columnist Matt Pai on this episode of Skullduggery. I do solemnly swear that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. And will, to the best of my ability, preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. So help me God. 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 I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. And I'm Victoria Bassetti, a Senior Counsel at States United. So you know what this reminds me of? Remember after the Iraq War when we discovered that there were no weapons of mass destruction in Iraq after the CIA and the entire U.S. intelligence community and the entire much of the United States government all said the weapons were there. The explanation that came from all the post action (laughs) studies was group think the power of groupthink where people a, a certain narrative gets accepted and then everybody fits every piece of data that comes in into that presumed narrative that's exactly what happened here it's what seems to happen after every election in 2016 the conventional wisdom the groupthink was Hillary Clinton was going to win in a landslide she didn't in 2020 Biden was going to win big he barely did and then the Republicans made all these gains in the house that nobody saw coming and here we are once again after an election where the pundits and the pollsters were wrong as soon as you said iraq the term groupthink popped right into my head i knew exactly where you were going um i think that's exactly right um are you saying i'm too predictable (laughs) no no i think you're you're insightful you're insightful and incisive no uh you know it's funny because the last podcast we did was about twitter and um of course so much of today's groupthink is shaped uh, by by Twitter and social media more generally. And I know we're going to have a robust conversation with uh, Romano and, and, and Matt Bai and all of us about, about polling. You know, I think in this particular case, um, it was the narrative rather than the, the data <laughs> that created the conventional wisdom, pushed so, so many people to say this was going to be a shellacking or, or a wave or, or whatever you want to call it. And, you know, obviously it, it wasn't. So I guess the, the question is, you know, going forward, can we step back and not rush to judgment as we're covering these elections? Because the, the problem is that it's still the, the media coverage still has an impact on how people vote and it does distort 
uh, in some ways voting. And if it's not based on entirely based on data and reporting and what we see with our eyes and hear with our ears, but is this kind of, you know, conventional wisdom that gets formed or groupthink, I think that's a problem. I'm sure that over the course of the next week, there's going to be a lot of uh, detailed looking into uh, exit polls and uh, all of the data that emerges from this to possibly establish a new form of groupthink about what to make of these 2022 elections and what sort of uh, they portend for the 2024 election. But I will say, at least for what it's worth, some of the things that I'm particularly interested in learning as a result of this election are essentially what's happening with the Latino vote, because we're seeing like some pretty significant kind of miscalculations or misunderstandings of how the Latino vote is showing up in places like Texas, Arizona, and Nevada, where those that vote is becoming increasingly important to determining outcomes. The other really important question is, to what extent did Dobbs and kind of concerns by young women drive these results? That might have been really significantly underestimated by the groupthink that we're talking about. And the other critically important question out of this is how durable is the anger out of Dobbs going to be? It's basically, I think probably we're going to find drove a lot of what happened yesterday in a lot of races. It was probably kind of determinative, but will that anger last past three months, four months, five months after Dobbs comes down? And then you have to parse the meaning for Dobbs. For a lot of people, it's going to be about the right to control your own body, the right to have an abortion. For other people, it's going to be a little more nuanced than that. It's going to be part of a larger perception uh, that extremism is winning winning over uh, in this country. So it is complicated. I'm going to be very eager to see um, how all of that shakes out. The election denier narrative is also going to be another incredibly important um, thing to parse. For example, I've seen early reporting that Every sing- in every single one of the races where the Democrats intervened and actually attempted to push the radical Republican in the primary, in every single one of those cases, the Democrats ultimately ended up prevailing. So it ended up possibly being an incredibly uh, wise tactic that was pursued by the Democrats um, in those cases. But we've got a lot to learn from the results, and we still don't actually even have results in a lot of races. And look, no question that Dobbs helped the Democrats, but we should also point out that the Trump factor also helped the Democrats. I mean, Trump took a shellacking in Pennsylvania, in New Hampshire. His candidates lost in Arizona. His candidates lost. Walker is barely hanging in there. We'll see how he does in a runoff, but I don't think Republicans are particularly uh, optimistic about that. And yet the guy's going to announce for president, or so he has seemed to indicate as early as next week. So, um, you know, Republicans have quite a few Donald Trump related headaches to deal with on his party. Look, a lot to talk about. I I do want to just throw in a couple of little election election results you probably didn't hear last night when you were watching the returns on TV. Maryland and Missouri both voted to legalize pot or decriminalize pot. Um, Another advance for those who believe in drug libertarianism. And in Colorado, voters backed a referendum that will legalize psychedelics. So anyway, on that point... (laughs) Um, Let's go to our uh, guests who have a lot of insights. So let's get to it. 
We now have with us our two political pundits for the week, uh, Andrew Romano of Yahoo News and our old friend Matt Bai. Andrew and Matt, welcome back to Skullduggery. Thank you. Thanks. Andrew, let's start out with you on the state of play at the moment in the Senate and House races. Well, it was something I was up pretty late last night trying to figure out. And honestly, not that much has changed as we head into about midday Wednesday here. The expectation among Republicans and a lot of pundits was that we would see a kind of red wave uh, in midterm elections, of course, especially in the first midterm election of a president's term, you tend to see the, the opposition party, the party that doesn't control the presidency, win a lot of seats. In Barack Obama's first midterm, I think it was more than 60 seats that Republicans won. In Donald Trump's first midterm, it was more than 40 that Democrats won. We didn't see that last night. That much is clear. It looks like if you kind of project out, Republicans might pick up somewhere around 10 seats in the House. They might get narrow control, but it's not the kind of big majority they were hoping for. And Democrats could hold the Senate. Now that's going to come down to a couple of these races that haven't been determined yet. Out West here, where I am in California, we're watching Nevada and Arizona, uh, where Mark Kelly and Catherine Cortez Masto are defending Democratic seats. It's unclear right now, and it's going to take some time before we know whether they're challengers, the Republican challengers, Blake Masters in Arizona, Adam Laxalt in Nevada, are going to pick up those seats. But if they don't, it might all come down to another runoff in Georgia, where you have Herschel Walker and Raphael Warnock, both under 50%. I believe Warnock's got a little bit of a lead right now, but not enough to put that one away. And we might have a runoff again in December here uh, that could determine control of the Senate. So big picture, likely a narrow, a very narrow House majority for Republicans, although there are a bunch of races even out here in California where the votes can be counted slowly and Dems could in fact hold on. And the Senate, we're not going to know probably for potentially for another month. So uh, Wait, are you, are is, you saying this is actually using pictures still? Right. Uh, that the Dems, if they win a bunch of these California House races, could still maintain control? It's possible. It's possible. Now, that's not the likeliest scenario. The likeliest scenario is that you'd, you'd have maybe Republicans with something like 225 seats in the House. They need about they need 218 for a majority. But there are so many outstanding races here. Republicans are just trying to claw their way to that majority. And it remains unclear, even if it's likelier that they'll get there, it's unclear that that's, that's going to happen for sure. What is clear is we are going to continue to have divided government. And that's been kind of a plague uh, that a lot of people have seen. On the other hand, it may be exactly what the American public wants. Matt, you're our big picture guy. Is that what we're looking at for the next two years? Well, a couple of things. First of all, you know, in the big picture, Romano's wearing a Phillies hat, which I, I respect. And I think I think he should just, in the spirit of the political season, not acknowledge their defeat. Just they won. <laughs> they won. They won the World Series. That's what he's doing. Wait, uh, hey, Matt, Matt. It was um, stolen. Matt, you it know, was rigged. For, the, for those of you who, who are, are watching this, which is nobody, because it's, a po- <laughs> because it's a podcast, I will point out that you have a Yankees, some kind of Yankees sign behind you. I so do. Are I you do. Also- how, did that, how did that turn out, Matt? 
Yeah. So we got a bunch of losers on this podcast. My daughter right won now, that basically. at an arcade. Right. Very, she, yeah. she saved up all her tickets to get me that sign. It's very moving to me. I will also just second, I'll say before we dive into the election, I feel like I don't know how many elections I spent with you guys, but it's it's sad. It's almost like it's like we're divorced <laughs> and we just come together for reunions or something. But anyway, it's always a sad. I see you guys in every election for like 20 years. Anyway. Well, like, first of all, let me spin, uh, you know, uh, let me look at Andrew's analysis a little, you know, a little differently about in a slightly different context. We failed to see the way what, what we actually saw, I think, although I, you know, I hesitate to say they're still counting, is a pretty conventional midterm election. It's a little Reagan-esque, like from like 82. It's sort of, you know, we've now had five straight presidencies with these wave elections. And if you're under a certain age in the country, None of us are, you know, you you be forgiven for thinking that that's a midterm election, but it's actually not. This is like strangely anomalous period in our politics. So my first thought, you know, when I woke up this morning was, oh, this is how midterms are generally used to look. Right. The party, the opposition party gets a bunch of seats. They don't sweep out everything. Uh, and it's a little bit of a mixed bag. We are going to have divided government, it appears. Uh, there's a lot to unpack in this election. I think it was really, um, you know, oftentimes. I don't really find them that interesting, you know, honestly, like oftentimes the election comes like, yeah, that's about what I figured. And you can see it. this election is uh, really interesting and um, not what I expected to this point. There's a lot of really interesting races and referenda. And I, and I think it's telling us things that, you know, which we can get into that I think are going to inform what happens over the next couple of years. Well, what are some of those things? Oh, you want me to know? I don't know yeah. what they are. Just, <laughs> no, I, you know, first oh, of all, you got you to gotta, you gotta see all the exit polling and the return. You got to see all the data. You're going to like, you know, uh, tell I don't need to see polling ever again. I think, you know, the couple of things that I really take away. And first of all, you know, we saw this during, you know, during the election, the ticket splitting was really, the polling during the election, that the, the potential ticket splitting was really interesting. You know, my, you guys know my wife's in politics. We talked about it all the time, political coverage. You know, what, what does this mean? Why is Mastriano running so far behind where Oz was running? Why was camp running so far ahead of where Walker, are people really going to split their votes? The answer is yes. Uh, and I think it comes down to a couple of reasons. Uh, I think one reason is probably the abortion issue, which played bigger, frankly, than I thought it would, even though I knew it was going to be an important factor. And what we're seeing in legislatures flipping Democratic, uh, you know, is really, and the referenda going down in conservative states, uh, really interesting. Which uh, legislatures then, uh, flipped, went Democratic? Michigan, I think, is going to flip Democrat, uh, Republican, and Democrat. There's, there's uh, Pennsylvania might. As well. What's Pennsylvania that? might. Pennsylvania, which is a big one. That way. But then the other thing is, I think, I think they're Minnesota. sending a pretty clear message about some of these Trumpist candidates, which is, you know, independents went for Democrats by a very slim margin. Very unusual in a midterm election. I did not think that would happen. I'll plainly admit to you, I would have been wrong on that point. That's why I don't make predictions. Uh, and those, I think, those independents and a lot of uh, traditional Republicans are telling us uh, we'll vote against the status quo. We don't like necessarily Democrats, but we won't vote for that. Right. We'll vote for Kemp, but we're not going for Warner. We'll vote for Oz, perhaps, but we're not voting for Mastriano. And so, you know, there's a limit to what the Trumpian Republican Party can probably achieve nationally. I think that to me is the lesson. It's a, it's a really bad night and outcome for Trump. It's going to portend, I think, a much bigger fight inside the Republican Party than perhaps uh, anyone thought he was going to get 48 hours ago. Yeah. 
Matt, you did mention some of the referenda, which were very important. And I just wanted to flag that there were um, four, maybe depending on how you count it, five referenda on the ballot regarding abortion rights. And all of those went, I would say, on the pro, kind of to the pro-choice side. Before this election, there was a lot of thought that the kind of the anger about Dobbs had had dissipated. Are you thinking that that's what happened, or are we believing that now that this election was really driven in large measure by young people and by uh, women who were still pissed off about Dobbs? I actually doubt we'll see an increase or a particularly impressive youth vote. I, I could be wrong. I don't think, I doubt that's what's driving this, although we'll find out. And I didn't see the exits on that to be, I'm no longer in the, in the uh, elite community of exit poll privilege, you know, but uh, so I haven't seen it, but I, uh, although it's probably all online if I bother to look, but I do think, you know, I, you know, again, another ticket split, an interesting note uh, in Kentucky where Rand Paul wanted a landslide, but the, the abortion measure, you know, goes to Democrats. So I think it played a bigger role than I thought it would. I, I, my sense of it was that, you know, the issue had proven to not be the end of the world since the court decision, that there were other things driving uh, the election more and that it was sort of a mitigating factor for Democrats, helpful to them in the suburbs, but not necessarily determinative. I think I probably would have been wrong about that. I think it was determinative uh, in some way. And I think, you know, like everything in politics, Victoria, no issue is just an issue, right? Abortion is, to a lot of women, it is the single issue, just like there are other single issues, but it's also a culture issue. It, it is this measure of, I think what I was just talking about is, hey, you guys go too far, right? They're, the American electorate is generally not extremist. A lot of us have wondered over the last year or two, maybe we're wrong. Maybe the American electorate has gotten so extremist. Maybe the primary system has so corrupted things. Maybe independents are so frustrated that we are no, we are not a particularly moderate country, and and that may still be the case. We certainly didn't sell that, but I think the abortion issue for a, a lot of voters is a stand-in for now. We you know there's a bridge too far. We're, we're not remaking, we're not re-engineering the society here. We don't want a Trumpian society. We want a more moderate center-right kind of government. And I, I think you know, um, I think there's lane, there's a strong lane for that in a presidential in 2024. But I think the voters are telling Republicans that moving further toward Trump is the wrong direction. So, Andrew, let me bring you into this because uh, you did all of our polling for Yahoo News along with uh, YouGov. And I think our poll, you know, was consistent with most of the other polls over the course of this campaign. I think we did see in the summer that abortion was looking increasingly like an important factor, that it was going to drive uh, Democratic enthusiasm and turnout to, you know, and that democracy was also an issue that had some salience, although not as much as abortion. And then that all started to fade. Uh, and the Republicans were pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into into uh, attacking the Democrats for being soft on crime, obviously inflation and um, gas prices continued to be uh, a, a big issue. So you heard what Matt was saying. What's your sense of what was a more important factor those issues in this election, and granted, we don't know yet, we haven't seen all the exit polling, but those issues or the individual candidates and the Trump factor? It's a great question. I mean, I, I agree with Matt that I think the Trump factor was pretty huge in this election. You look at a state like Ohio. Now, J.D. Vance won the Senate race there. He's the, the Trumpy candidate, but he was running about 10 percentage points behind Mike DeWine, the in incumbent governor who is a much more sort of moderate, traditional establishment Republican. You see that deficit, that gap there replicated 
in a lot of other states where you have a sort of Trumpy candidate and a more traditional Republican on the ballot. So it's almost like Republicans had this great opportunity. I mean, they it's a first midterm election of Biden's presidency. Biden's approval ratings are, I think, the lowest on record for a modern president at this point in his first term. You have record inflation. Uh, you have skyrocketing interest rates. You had, as you mentioned, crime, uh, which has ticked up during the pandemic. And those fundamentals, looking at those fundamentals, you would expect Republicans to capitalize more than they did. The fact that they didn't, I don't know that it comes down to any one issue, like how much, how high inflation pulled versus how abortion pulled. It comes down, I think, and I agree with Matt on this, to voters maybe wanting a change, but not wanting that much of a change, not wanting to go all the way into a kind of Trumpian society. You know, our poll showed about a third of voters said inflation was the most important issue to them. The exit polls showed the same thing. You had almost as many, I think, in the national exit polls, although these were preliminary, and we're going to see them updated to match the actual returns, about 27% saying abortion was the most important issue to them. I think this was motivating different voters in different places. But the big picture is there was an opportunity here, given the fundamentals for Republicans, to capitalize and make this the kind of election that we've seen, again, at the beginning of Obama's term, at the beginning of Trump's term. And it, the fact that it wasn't, I do think, comes down to that kind of bridge too far idea. Just that if yeah. you had had kind of, uh, you know, more normal can, uh, Republican candidates running. That's not, what I'm saying. Look uh, at DeWine. It might have been a wave election or it might have yeah, been. Yeah. hundred percent. hundred percent. Yeah. Just to follow up on this, because it's it's relevant to what Andrew just said, which is that, you know, the polls were really off. When you take a look at the way the results came in in Arizona in terms of their predicting who was or wasn't going to win in those races, they predicted much tighter margins in places like Wisconsin, didn't end up that way at all. Is it time for us to maybe recognize that polling is broken? I would question the premise there. I actually don't know. That I would do were 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 that far off. Our poll, in fact, showed Democrats. Our final poll showed Democrats leading on the congressional, the generic ballot. Uh, I'm not talking percent. about ge generic. I'm talking about you know some of the point. specific the specific races yeah, that were all, coming out. The polls showed, I think, pretty much across the board, that all of these close Senate races, for example, were going to be close. Now, if it you know the final average was you know uh, in Wisconsin, Ron Johnson was up by three points and he ends up winning that race by one and a half. I mean, I, I have to look, but I I think a lot of people assume things about the polls that are actually more about the narrative. There was a there was a narrative building in the final days of this campaign that Republicans were going to win a wave, and I think that was informed again by what we've seen in previous midterm elections. Uh, but I don't know that it was so informed by the polls. We we saw it's the uh, so-called vibes versus the, vibes. the actual data. Yeah, I do think the vibes contributed to that expectation. The polls showed Democrats in the hunt on the generic ballot, close races in these key Senate contests and a sort of modest to kind of middling potential pickup of whatever, something from 10 to 40 seats for Republicans in the House. Now, we're going to be on the low end of that, it looks like. But I think it was with well within the range of probabilities predicted by the polls. I'll jump in on that and say, Victoria, if I, if I, I mean, I, I do think we need to reform the way we report on polls and look at them yes. for sure. But like, you know, if I get on a scale right now and measure my weight and I come back 
10 minutes later and measure my weight again and 10 minutes later, measure my weight again. And they're all different. And it, it turns out that they're all, you know, it's off my true weight by a pound or a half a pound. I'm not going to throw my scale out the window and crash it. The scale's not calibrated to do that, right? When you have races, when you're talking about polling in races that are within two points or within the margin of error, it's it's kind of, we should be more sophisticated, the pollsters, you know, this, this whole industry of clicks for polling is a problem. But the truth is, the polls can't get that close, right? I think that's what Andrew's saying too. It's 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 gonna. It's not really telling you a narrative about the race. It's just telling you it's too close to call. I actually I get a polling roundup every day. You know, this is just an example of what I'm talking about. I get a polling roundup every day from a pollster. I won't mention he does public polling. Just aggregates them, and you know, I wrote he, every day. It says you know Biden down one from yesterday. Biden's approval, same as yesterday. I finally wrote him a note. I said, well, you know, I like what you're doing with your polling, but you can't say that. That's not how it works. It didn't go down from yesterday. It's my scale example. If I stepped on the scale 24 hours ago, it doesn't mean that if I'm three ounces less today, I lost three ounces. It just means I'm standing differently. There's a whole host of things that can make a point difference in 24 hours. Uh, and of course, you know, he completely ignored me. But but that that kind of reporting, presenting of polls, the industry that's grown up around it, you know, is, is a problem. But I will say, you know, some of this, a lot of this, I had to say, is on readers and consumers. They desperately want the polling. They consume it. They click on it. They need it. They need the narrative. And then as soon as it's off by two points, there's always this flood of like, polling is broken. You people are full. Like, well, you're the one demanding polls on races that are two points apart. Like, I'm here to tell you they're meaningless. But you can keep demanding them if you want. But it doesn't mean polling is broken. All right. Back to the Trump factor, because I had a, a fascinating discussion this morning with a Republican consultant who I cannot name for reasons that will soon become clear. But um, <laughs> his what he said was, and I'm that's direct quotes here, I'm livid. Donald Trump is a giant moronic fuck up who has messed up everything for our party. It's all his fault. Pennsylvania is his fault. Arizona is his fault. New Hampshire is his fault. I can't and believe then, Steve Bannon told you that. And, and <laughs> then and then he says, but that's all off the record. <laughs> you can't use it, which to me sort of encapsulates, you know, the state of the Republican Party where they are fed up with the guy. They realize what a drag he is. And yet there is still the fear and his power. And he seems, you know, we'll see. He's going to announce for president next week. He has told us he's going to make a big announcement. We can assume what that is. And DeSantis's big victory, re-election victory in Florida, notwithstanding, he still seems the best position to be the party nominee in 2024. Right, but DeSantis, after last night is yeah. better positioned than he was the day before, right? 100%, yeah. Yeah. Right. I mean, so you're going to have a race. But here's the danger in the Repu for the Republican Party right now, I think, which is, well, they have a lot of dangers, but but the, the danger of looking at 2024 is now there's going to be a, an argument and emboldening, right? To your point, Mike, I think people are going to are going to be afraid, but a little less afraid. And DeSantis is definitely going to get in. And the but if I were Republicans, the fear I would have is that it's so emboldening. There's such a feeling uh, that now Trump's grip is loosening and he's been bad for the party that you'll get another dozen plus candidate field or something. And again, Trump will benefit from this weird math that made him president in the first place, which is having a solid base of support 
and having everything else fragmented. I think, you know, what, what really, if you're DeSantis or any serious Republican who wants this run, uh, and I could, you know, there are a couple others who would deserve a look. I think, you know, what you want is, yeah, you want to take on Trump, but you want fewer than five candidates on that stage. You don't want to play into that, into that magic. By the way, before, just before you jump in, Mike, because we talked about DeSantis, he did have a very good night. You know who else had a really good night last night? Well, a couple of people, President Biden had a pretty good night for his case for 2024, but Gretchen Whitmer in Michigan and Jared Polis in Colorado. Colorado is looking like the democratic version of Florida, the state that they have taken, that was purple, that they have solidified by running strong candidates. Uh, Although, you know, I could also argue that Kemp's big victory in Georgia, uh, which, by the way, swept all other than Walker, all statewide races were run by were won by Republicans. It it would seem that Georgia, by virtue of that, may well have been flipping back to red from purple where it was two years ago. And if that's the case, you look at a at a presidential map Florida red, Ohio reliably red now, Texas red. Mike, I don't think you can argue that that, that Georgia is flipping Georgia to that. I don't think you can add that Georgia is flipping back to red. I mean, Georgia might, you know, purple. No, but I'm saying a a, a 53 and a half percent victory for Kemp is is pretty big. It's hard to gauge in a midterm because, you know, you are getting anti-incumbent enthusiasm and and independence breaking that way. So, you know, to Danny's point, I think, you know, this, I think Georgia does lean Republican more than it leans Democrat it, to the extent that it's a, it's a, it's a purple state, but, but I think, you know, in a, in a midterm, it's going to lean anti-incumbent. So I think the jury's a little bit out on, on, I don't, I don't well, know. Midterm, yeah, but Kemp, Kemp won, Kemp won big. He was, yeah, incumbent. he also stood up to Trump, you know, so I, you know, but, but, but that doesn't mean a Democrat couldn't win. I want to get back uh, to another state that you just mentioned. Uh, you mentioned Gretchen Whit- uh, Whitmer and, and uh, Michigan. And uh, we actually have a um, – we've been tweeted at by one of our loyal fo- followers, Mike Stefani, who uh, says that we should pay attention to what's going on in Michigan. And I had not quite realized this, but it's not just the Gretchen Whitmer one, but so did, uh, so did the attorney general. Dana Nessel won. They flipped the state legislature – uh, which they haven't controlled the, the legislature since I, I gathered 1980, yeah. I think 1983, right? That's 40 years. And they maintain their edge on the Supreme Court. Dan, three key uh, House races, too. And, and, and then the House one. races. But so yeah. a couple of points here. First of all, uh, we talked a little bit before about the importance of, of uh, state legislatures. And I think it was a bit of a surprise that Democrats did as well as they did in some of these uh uh, state legislative races and and flipping some some houses and then there's the democracy then there's the democracy question and secretaries of state right? are there any Trump secretaries of state well I think uh, I don't know what the final result is in in Nevada but it looked like Jim Marchant who's an election denier a big election denier uh, was on a path to win uh, but Mark Fincham the the former or current oath keeper who is a huge election denier looks like he uh, is going down there if he hasn't already uh, that's in Arizona. But, in, yeah. in Arizona, right. Uh, but uh, Andrew, talk about Michigan, because I think it's um, obviously a you know hugely important state for any Democrat who runs in 2024. And then, you know, the importance of, of controlling Democrats, controlling those legislatures and the secretary of state and the attorney general is key to um, to elections in the future. 
Yeah, I mean, it's potentially the sort of inverse of, of Arizona, which is a state that I've been watching closely out here in the West. And we don't have those final results in Arizona. We're waiting on them. Fincham, I just want to put this out there. He's potentially still on the hunt um, in Arizona. Carrie Lake, the gubernatorial candidate, the Trump Trumpism's leading lady, uh, big, big election denier, both of them also still in the hunt. So uh, just want to caution people that you could have uh, Republicans potentially in control of the election machinery in Arizona, which was the closest state in 2020, uh, heading into 2024. As you mentioned, Michigan, kind of the reverse of that. There was a serious risk of something similar happening there, uh, which was Republicans in control of the election machinery. It doesn't look like it happened. And I think that's really interesting because, you know, Michigan is, of course, one of these blue wall states that fell to Trump. Looks like maybe things went a little too far and they're pulling back from from the brink. It seems like Michigan's telling a pretty consistent story, at least in that kind of, you know, upper Midwest. You have Tony Evers winning in Wisconsin as well. That's another state in that blue wall. Uh, of course, they have a lot of uh, sort of gerrymandering issues that, you know, give a lot of power to the state legislature there, which is controlled by Republicans. But I think an encouraging night in the upper Midwest blue wall states, especially Michigan for Democrats, and especially on this election integrity issue. So let's get back to let's get back to Georgia for a second, because Isakoff, you're actually in Atlanta. Uh, you I were down there cover, right. covering these races. And it looks very much at this point like uh, there's going to be a runoff uh, between uh, Warnock and Walker. So it's uh, deja vu all over again. And it could be a runoff that is, d- decides uh, the fate of the Senate. So my understanding is is when you have these uh, Georgia runoffs, it's not just like having another election. The dynamics tend to shift, and sometimes it can favor one party, sometimes it can favor another party. How are you gaming it out? Well, first um, of all, right a now? lot is going to depend on whether control of the Senate depends on the outcome of this race. Uh, if it does, that gives a, a a boost to Walker because Republicans have a massive incentive to spend as much money and do everything they can to kick Chuck Schumer out of the majority leader's seat and take back control of the Senate. If it does not, I think that enormously helps Warnock because Walker is a weak candidate. And if it were not for the national GOP going all in because they wanted control, he would have done, you know, I mean, Warnock would have won. Uh, with over 50. It was it was simply the money and the big party figures uh, who came down and campaigned for Walker that kept him in the game. You know, that said, you know, the main takeaway on a runoff is just complete disgust with having to go through another month of mudslinging ads, which is what everybody in Georgia has talks about and has seen nonstop. I mean, most of these ads have been about the, the other candidates, ex-wives going, say, you know, videos, you know, the, the Warnock ads showing Walker's ex-wife talking about how he held a gun to her head and the Walker ads have Warnock's ex-wife talking about how uh, he tried to run her over in a car. And they've all seen it nonstop. And the idea that we're going to get another month of that is pretty dispiriting. And also the other factor is money. I mean, Georgians are tapped out on giving money. And if control of the Senate doesn't depend on 
who the winner is, I think that both sides are going to have trouble raising the bucks. Let's pivot to Nevada real quickly, if we can, too, because it, the Nevada and Arizona Senate races are the other two that are still outstanding that no one really is uh, quite has a handle on yet. Two questions, Andrew. First, how long will it take before we can reasonably know what the outcomes in Arizona and Nevada are going to be for the Senate races there? And just to remind people, it's uh, Mark Kelly defending his seat and Cortez Mastro defending her seat in Nevada. So how, how long do you think? Hopefully this week, they're sort of counting these last, you know, uh, batches of uh, mail ballots that were kind of late in arriving ballots that were cast on Election Day. I think what we're seeing right now, narrow leads for uh, narrow lead for Mark Kelly in Arizona. There's about 70 percent of the votes in. Looks like he's up by five percentage points. Um, One thing to note, though, in Arizona is that most people vote there by mail. So you don't get the same partisan divide in the mail ballots, in the the late arriving mail ballots that you might get in another state where that's predominantly a Democratic practice and Republicans go to polling places on Election Day. So it's really going to depend on those margins there and whether Kelly's margin holds up. People think he's in pretty good shape. It's leaning toward Mark Kelly. But again, we got to see what those sort of last, that last 30% of uh, ballots look like. And we're, we're going to hopefully see that over the next couple of days. Nevada is really tricky. Laxalt has a narrow lead, I believe, right now in the latest results. I'm just ch- double checking that. Yeah, Laxalt's up by about two and a half percentage points or about three quarters of the votes in. But that m- it might not be as bad for Catherine Cortez Masto as it looks, because unlike in Arizona, there's a huge batch of uh, mail ballots, Dropbox uh, ballots that came in late uh, that are going to be counted, especially in Clark County, Las Vegas, the big population center and Democratic stronghold there, maybe as many as 100,000. And those are expected to lean heavily Democratic. So she could make up that margin. It's going to depend, again, though, on just how Democratic those ballots lean. So we'll find out more today, uh, more over the next couple of days. I would expect, hopefully, results sometime this week. I would just jump in on that and say, you know, because this is something I was looking at and thinking about that I would not assume I, I would not assume the models on mail voting are correct because to the extent that people try to forecast them, because 2020 was the first year we had a lot of mail voting. Trump was telling people not to vote by mail. There was a lot of distrust in, you know, in, in rural areas. I would expect that with each successive cycle, the proportion of Republican votes will grow closer to the proportion of Democratic votes that are mailed in because people are going to become more uh, comfortable with that. And it's easier. And they don't have someone telling them how terrible it is and it'll never work. So, uh, you know, it's probably a Democratic advantage in most states, as Andrew says, uh, that are in Arizona. But it's also probably not the advantage that it was two years ago. Uh, it probably is a more of a mixed bag, literally, figuratively, uh, than than we than we may think it is. I want to go back to Nevada real quickly, though, because uh, not not only is uh, Cortez Mastro on, you know, kind of uh, on a nice edge about whether or not she's going to win reelection, but so too is the governor, the attorney general, and the secretary of state, which would be a sweep of all of the Democratic. Well, actually, the, the current secretary of state's race is open, but it would be a sweep of that state for the Republicans. And that is unexpected, I would say. Nevada, a lot of people thought was, you know, kind of trending a little bit blue over the course of the last decade. What's happening in Nevada that we're missing? 
Yeah, Nevada is a really interesting place and one that I've thought a bit about. So yes, Nevada sort of became a purple state, then a blue state, but it's been shifting back in the Trump era towards purple, even closer to red. Um, We are seeing uh, the rise of independent voters there. They had an automatic registration when you uh, you signed up for your, your driver's license or registered your car. A lot of people chose no party preference. So you're seeing people move away from the two parties. You're also seeing the Latino vote grow there. As we've seen nationally during the Trump era, the Latino vote has been shifting right, not fully Republican, but Democrats' margins have been shrinking among Latino voters. That's a huge factor in Nevada. And it's part of the reason why you saw, even as the country moved away from Trump in the 2020 election, Nevada actually got tighter. Um, Trump did better there than he had done four years earlier. Nevada kind of moved in the opposite direction. And if, as you say, there's a sweep for Republicans, which is very much up in the air, but they're certainly very competitive there, it would be, I think, another data point along that trend line. Andrew, uh, let me... Let me let me follow up on this with the Latino vote and a couple of points. One is that, you know, we often talk about the nationalization of of, of elections in, in this country. But it seems tell me if I'm wrong, that with respect to the Latino vote, there's a kind of a regionalization going on. Right. Because what you just mentioned about uh, Nevada, uh, maybe why Republicans are doing better. We saw these astonishing results in Miami-Dade in Florida, where Marco Rubio and DeSantis uh, just cleaned up. I mean, Hillary Clinton won that county in 2016 by almost 30 points. Yeah, that county's the new Dallas. It's going to be the last metro area in the country. That's right, right. Republican. Until it goes uh, but, underwater due to yeah, climate but, change. But, right, exactly. But, you know, is what, what happened in, what's happening in Nevada, in, in Florida, is that reflecting the, the Latino vote Nationally, because my sense is uh, that that it's that it's not. Um, I, I just haven't seen all the numbers, and I wonder what you what you yeah, think about. This that. is, I mean, this is something that I'm kind of eager to dig into as we get uh, sort of better exit polling data and sort of precinct level data from some of these analytics groups. It's it's unclear. I mean, the the broader trend, right? As I said, is that Democratic margins among Latino voters broadly have been shrinking. You see it in a very dramatic way, obviously, in Miami-Dade, which is 70 percent Latin American, heavily Cuban. Uh, Cuban Americans have, of course, for a long time been more conservative than other Latin American groups. But just the, the sort of speed and scale of that shift from 30 points for Hillary Clinton to Ron DeSantis becoming the first gubernatorial candidate to win there for Republicans since 2002 in 20 years. I mean, it's it's very dramatic, but I think a lot of that has to do with those Cuban American dynamics. How it's sort of shaking out elsewhere remains to be seen. I saw, you know, Beto O'Rourke, of course, lost in Texas, but he did pretty well uh, sort of along the Rio Grande, the southern border there in these heavy, heavily Latino districts that had shown some trending towards Trump. So maybe it depends on the candidate, how they're kind of reaching out their their outreach to the community. And it's going to depend on, I think, looking deeply at what's happening in Nevada, how these races shake out, how Latinos voted there. But again, the bigger picture is Democrats are not doing as well with Latinos as they, they'd hoped long term. And there's some work, I think, for the party to do there. So to wrap up, uh, we talked uh, before about what all this means for a presidential contest on the Republican side with Trump. 
But Matt, I'd be interested in your take on what this means uh, for 2024 for the Democrats. And, you know, the conventional wisdom this morning is, you know, uh, Biden is stronger and this makes it much more likely he will run for reelection. On the other hand, you know, he's still going to be an octogenarian uh, with uh, poll ratings, you know, below 50 percent, uh, you know, in the 40s. And, you know, the prospect of a, a recession next year, which could make those poll ratings go down even more. How do you see this shaken out? I mean, is Biden determined to run for reelection? Are the Democrats, you know, basically going to let him do that and let him make the decision? given the potential pitfalls that are out there. Mike, this is 100% the central question in democratic politics once the dust settles from these elections, which is going to be very soon, um, which is what does Biden do and, and what do the people around him do? He did have a very good night. He can make an argument that, as I said at the outset, he had a Reagan-like midterm, that they've turned a corner. If he really wants to run again, he has bolstered his case. Uh, and certainly everyone I talk to who has better uh, access than I, says that he appears to want to run again. On the other hand, other Democrats had a good night, too. I think Gretchen Whitmer is probably the strongest candidate in the party, quite honestly, and she had a very good night. Uh, Jared Polis has shown some interest. He had a very good night. Colorado is a Democratic example right now. There are others. So I, the million-dollar question for Democrats is going to be uh, two questions, really. Is he set on running again? And does that mean no one will no one will challenge him. Is there any going to be ever effort to push him aside? I think it is dangerous boarding. It's just my feeling. I, I like President Biden. I've always liked him. I've interviewed him for years and years and years. I think it's dangerous bordering on reckless to run an 80 odd year old, an 81 year old president, which is what we'll, we'd be looking at, at a potentially difficult economic moment uh, when the country is trying to look toward the future, when you have a bench of some really talented candidates. And I think that's going to be a real conversation inside the Democratic Party. And, and but on. will it be a public conversation? Because my sense is no Democrat wants to say word one to suggest that Biden should not run for reelection. Yet they all share the analysis that you just gave. And that's probably the biggest effect of these results, right? Because I think if Democrats had suffered through the wave that a lot of us thought possible, there it would be more public. Right. There would there right. would a lot of Democrats in the country would be emboldened to say we need a change in a way that I think might happen on the Republican side. As it is, I don't think I think there's going to be a lot of deference. And the danger is not just in running a candidate who I think, you know, is pushing the boundaries of what Americans will accept in leadership. But I also think the danger is he waits too long. Right. I mean, if if Biden dithers on this, which he has a history a while, of doing, by the freezes way, freezes the right. field. Yeah. And then there's then we see signs of a recession or then for whatever reason, by next summer or in spring or summer, you know, maybe I don't want to do this. You know, you can get to a point where it's very hard for someone outside of Washington or who's lesser known nationally to get an introduction, to raise money, to build a network. If I were I've said this, you know, I said this a year ago, so I certainly feel it now. If I were Gretchen Whitmer or Polis or Newsom or 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 whoever or or people to judge to some extent, I'd, I'd be leaving by the end of the year if I were people to judge. But if I were one of these people thinking, hey, if he doesn't run, I want to be in it. I'd run now. I wouldn't say I'm running. I'm running for president. I'm taking on the president. I'd be building the network. I'd be out making the case. I'd be standing. I'd be setting, you know, standing up an organization and simply saying, you know what, I, I, I'm going to I want to be ready. I don't know what's going to happen. And I want to be ready. You don't have to challenge the president, but you cannot afford to wait 
until halfway through 2023. The last point I'd make on this, and 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 Matt, as someone who has known Biden uh, and covered him as long as as you have, I think you know this, which is I'm not sure that the larger conversation in the Democratic Party is as important as the smaller conversation in Joe Biden's family. I think it's going to be Jill Biden, his sister Val, and those very close aides around him, whether it's Ron Klain or Mike Donilon or, you know, whoever it is. And I think that conversation is has been happening and uh, is going to be accelerated, maybe complicated a little bit by these results. But I think that's where, you know, the action is going to be in terms of this yeah. decision. But that, but that conversation has happened before many times. And it's generally been people saying, don't do it. And he did it and it worked out. You know, he did twice and twice and it worked out when when people told him not and when and when he was when he allowed himself to be pushed aside i think he regretted it a little bit or certainly the party regretted it because that was when hillary clinton cruised to the nomination and then got beaten so so i'm not sure you know i think he's probably tempered by that a little bit i I just think the rationale is wrong right biden's rationale and people who support him is basically and i've had this conversation with with senior democrats too important election, an election to go with an unknown. The only one who can take on Trump or someone like Trump is a nationally known, powerful figure like a Joe Biden who's already in office. I just fundamentally think that premise is wrong. It ignores the reality of American politics. People want change. They want to look forward. They want a fresh face. They want to break from the past. I don't think, I, I think it's quite the opposite. I think the riskiest thing you can do is, is put up a guy who, uh, who is older than any president we'd have elected, who seems his age, who is respected and, and admired, but also, you know, on, by by in his own party, but also extremely unpopular now with uh, with a lot of conservative leading independents and who's going to face a, probably a difficult economic environment by virtue of fixing the difficult economic environment he inherited. Right. This is the, the cure is going to be as, as tough as the malady. So uh, I think it's a bad calculation. And I and I think I think and I there, there will be a serious conversation around it. Now, has to- this will be a conversation we will continue to have on skullduggery, regardless of what the Biden family is saying among <laughs> themselves. So uh, anyway, Matt and Andrew, I want to thank you again for your analysis. And um, Matt, we'll see you again uh, after the next election. Next election, guys. Yeah. Thanks for having me. <laughs>